0: certainly hope that's the desire of our heart this morning. Uh, Let's go ahead and turn over to Psalm 32 will be our text for this morning as we'll uh, do our study this morning of uh, the last uh, chapter or the last paragraph rather of chapter 17 dealing with the perseverance of the saints. And so Psalm 32 will be the text that we're going to read before we get into uh, this lesson this morning. This is a psalm of repentance it's a psalm of David it's a psalm uh, that David uh, penned uh, in a sense of time of repentance rather And it is a confession of sin, uh, the confession of not someone else's sin, but the confession of his own sins. It is very similar in its wording and very similar to its uh, contents as Psalm 51. Now, we realize Psalm 51, also penned by David, uh, is a psalm of repentance, and this is key for this morning and restoration. Um, Our subject today for our study is perseverance and backsliding, and we're certainly thankful not only for the gift of repentance, But we're also thankful for the gift of restoration, uh, that if we do in fact fall into sin, uh, we have a redeemer, we have a restoration uh, that is possible through Christ. So as we read this uh, psalm this morning, I hope this will will really minister to our hearts this morning, uh, thinking about David penning these words under the inspiration of the Spirit. Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from trouble, thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go, I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Uh, Really, David sets out the theme of paragraph 3 of our confession of chapter 17 this morning, where David is really describing not only uh, what repentance is, uh, but the beauty of repentance being granted. Uh, It would be one thing for us to have the ability to request or ask for repentance, but God not grant it or give it to us. Uh, To be caught and stuck in that feeling that David writes about. Notice the expressions he uses, the very first words of that psalm. He says, "'Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven.'" Whose sin is covered. David is writing as a converted man, not as a man who is now being converted, but a man who says the very greatest blessing that I have in all of this world and all the world to come is the fact that my sin in my transgression is forgiven and my sin is covered. Uh, This is a man who is praying as a believer, not a man who is seeking God for the salvation for his soul. David prays this way because he knows what it is to be a believer he knows what it is to have days and moments and sometimes sadly in the lives of believers years where we are away from God uh, that we are we are in this backslidden condition uh, that is being written here David, continues this, uh, this doxology, if you will, in the very beginning of this psalm. He says, Blessed is a man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. Uh, he's, he's thanking the Lord that uh, what's been imputed to him and is not still in his account, that, that it is the beauty of not being in his account is his sin. Blessed is the man who is not standing in his sins right at this moment, because if he is, he's a condemned man. David is writing as a man who says, blessed is he, that's me, who is not standing in my iniquity, but in the place of my iniquity, what's there instead is the righteousness of Christ. And there is this beauty uh, that David writes with. Notice the physical toll this was taking on David. Verse 3, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. David was having physical problems as a result of his sin. Uh, We cannot begin to think that sin does not affect us physically. It instigates and creates physical problems. David is not speaking some hypothetical, mystical thing here. He is saying this was taking such a toll on me that he describes it, my bones waxed old. By the silence, he means when I wouldn't repent, when I wouldn't turn back, when I wouldn't come back to God, this is what was happening to me. My bones waxed old through roaring, all day long. Uh, it, it's a very uh, illustrative uh, words that he's using here. Day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Now David is more writing here about his spiritual condition. He's saying I'm, I'm spiritually dry. I, I am, I'm hardened. I'm to the place now uh, where day and night, notice he says it's not his own hand that's heavy upon him. He says thy hand is heavy upon me. He says, Lord, your hand was pressing upon me as I sat in this unrepenting condition. I was, my bones were waxing old, they were roaring all day, and my moisture was dried. And then that little word, Selah, means stop, ponder, and consider. So within those first four verses of this psalm, David says, stop, ponder, and consider what I have just said. That in itself is a sermon. That in itself is an entire message. We could park there. But then David begins the process of what happened. He said, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. Now remember, our sin is never hidden from God. David is not telling God, I revealed to you what I was guilty of, I revealed to you what I was doing. David is acknowledging that God knows. There's a big difference there, folks. You don't tell God anything He doesn't already know. David says, "I am acknowledging what you already knew. I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin." Selah. Again, stop, ponder, consider what he's just said. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto Thee in a time when Thou mayest be found. Notice again, David says, "Every one that is godly pray in pray unto Thee." This is not a prayer that's being offered to the unbeliever. This is David understanding that it is only the believer who can come to God in this fashion. It is only God who can come to the, only the believer that can come to God in this fashion and acknowledge his sin that is being, that is, needs to be confessed before this holy God. And so David now begins the second half of this psalm and he says, Thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Now David did not mean that he would be preserved from all physical trouble. David had many troubles in his life. We're going to learn a little bit about that this morning in this paragraph. David was compassed on every side with trouble. He had trouble in his own home. He had trouble from his own son. Much of it was a direct result of his own sin. David is not saying, God, you're going to preserve me from trouble in this life. But he did know you're going to preserve me from eternal trouble. I know that even because of this, I am not going to slide out of your hands into an eternal hell. I know that I'm safe and secure. You will preserve me. You are my hiding place. You'll compass me about with songs of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule. This is interesting how the, the psalm kind of changes. And it's as if David is saying, I will instruct thee. No, he's, he's listening to God. And God is saying, I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to teach you. And he's telling David, that don't be like the horse. Don't be like the mule which has no understanding. And the only way you can get that horse and that mule to go the way they're supposed to go is you gotta put a bit in their mouth. You gotta put a bridle on them. You have to constantly jerk and yank and move them to the direction they need to go. He says, don't be like that. He says, Those are, that is like being without understanding. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Folks, always remember this. And this is kind of a devotional thought this morning. Always remember that sorrow will come to the wicked and we will have sorrow. We will have trouble. But remember this, he that, hath, he that trusts in the Lord, mercy is always surrounding us. God's mercy is always surrounding us. It's a beautiful picture of what's being shown here. Then the final verse is, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Uh, What a beautiful picture and a prayer of confession. Why David had to pray this is really the subject of what we're talking about this morning. It is the reality of perseverance and backsliding. Uh, David was not a perfect man. He was called a man after God's own heart. He was never called a sinless, perfect man in and of himself. David was surrounded by his own sin. And yet what this psalm teaches us this morning is teaches us that there is a remedy. There is a place that David could go. More specifically, there was a person in whom he could approach. Only a believer could approach God in the way that David approached God in Psalm 32. This is not a prayer that an unbeliever can pray. This is a believer who is in a backslidden condition. That's exactly what's happening today. In paragraph three, notice what it says. and uh, this, This really gives us the reality of what backsliding is and the reality of its possibilities. Now remember, everyone who claims to be backslidden is not necessarily backslidden. And everyone that we think is backslidden is not necessarily backslidden. There are people who are just not in the faith at all. So we've got to be careful that we don't look at this and say everyone who meets this criteria is really a believer who's in David's shoes. There are people who were once claimed to be in the faith, professed to be in the faith, who are no longer in the faith because they were never there to begin with. There's a big difference in being backslidden and being a denier. You cannot mix the two. But notice what the confession writers wrote about this possibility. It says, and though they may, through the temptation of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of means of their preservation, fall into grievous sins, and for a time continue therein whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit. Come to have their graces and comforts impaired, have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. That paragraph describes the David of Psalm 32 as clearly, and maybe the most clear of any scripture in all the Bible. David knew what it was through temptation, through the prevalency of his own sin nature that was still present in him, which, by the way, folks, is still present in every one of you and me. That corruption is still there. But notice what it says and the neglect of the means of their preservation. Every backslidden condition begins with personal neglect. Not God neglecting you, you neglecting God. You don't just fall into backslidden condition. It begins by your own neglecting neglecting of the things of God. The neglect leads to a fall into grievous sins. Notice it's not the other way around. And I believe that is scriptural. We'll look at the way that the confession writers uh, use these footnoted verses. Notice it doesn't say that it's through the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, they fall into grievous sins. No, it begins by the neglect of the means of their preservation. The very means which are preserving you are the very means in which you're neglecting. The very things which God has promised to hold you with are the things you're neglecting. That's what leads into a fall into grievous sins. When David, what he's mostly confessing about, is the sin of when he went upon that rooftop and he looked across and he saw Bathsheba, and that led to a series of events that led David into very grievous sins. But David neglected what he knew and put himself where he shouldn't have been. That neglect led to a fall into grievous sins. Now, notice they were also very specific to state this, and for a time continue therein. For a time. Not forever, but for a time they continue in what? The neglect which leads to grievous sin. That is a true backslidden condition. The neglect of that which preserves you, leading to a fall into grievous sins that without a repentance of those sins You will remain in that condition. That's what David was saying in Psalm 32 when he says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. David felt the heavy hand of God upon him. Notice they continue therein, whereby they incur incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit. Uh, Just because you are in the faith, just because you are in Christ does not mean you cannot incur God's displeasure. It doesn't mean that you are free to do whatever you want to do, when you want to do it, because you're saved by faith, you're saved by grace, and because I I have a license to sin. That's the very thing that Paul said. Grace is not a license to sin. Grace, if anything, is a license to holiness. That's not great theology, but that's the principle. Grace is your license to holiness. The only way you can be a holy, living person is by God's grace. So there is this displeasure. There is a grieving of the Spirit. They come to have their graces, and notice this, and comforts impaired. You know why David couldn't find any comfort in Psalm 32? Because it was impaired. It was impaired by his own sin. It was impaired because David had made those decisions that led him into this backslidden condition. Now again, we are not... Uh, holding David up as a way of saying, look how bad this man is and how much better we are. We realize that everything that happened to David has happened to you or might happen to you. You're not beyond this. I'm not beyond this. I could begin to neglect my own, the own preservation of God towards me. I could fall into grievous sins. And within weeks, I could say, I'm away from God. But that's the, that is what the, the, the confession writers were so clear about. Notice, as you neglect and you fall into grievous sins, your graces and comforts are impaired, your hearts are hardened. If you've ever talked to a true believer whose heart has become hardened, you'll know it. You'll know it. Now, I've talked to people with hard hearts who've never made a profession of faith, and it's different. But those who are away from the Lord, who have that heart that has become hardened to these things, there is a difference. Their conscience is wounded. They hurt and scandalize others. Boy, we never think about the reality that your sin actually hurts someone else or causes a scandal towards someone else. You see, sin is very, very selfish. When we're deciding to commit a sin or deciding to neglect our walk with God, we think this is my choice, this is my life, I can do what I want to do, my actions affect no one else. Your actions, David's life proves that. It affects more than just you. His actions led to an effect that not only led to the own scandal of his own home, but to the scandal of others. It hurt others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. People often say, you know, wait till God judges you. You'll get what's coming to you. God judges now, temporally. Now notice this is not judgments that are being towards the unbeliever. These are judgments towards those who are believers and are in the God's preservation can bring temporal judgments upon themselves. You know, we're very quick to point out the wicked of the world. We're very quick to point out all of their sins, but we're less likely to point out the sin that's in us that says, you know what? God could very much be judging me temporally for what I'm doing right now. Folks, let me just encourage us by way of an application to understand that we are, none of us are free to just simply think that I can do what I want and I will never have these problems or that God will never judge me. You know, I've told you that silly statement that people make, only God can judge me. Do you know how ignorant of a statement that is? That's the last judgment you want. I'll take your judgment of me all day long, even if it's bad. Because my ultimate judge, my ultimate stand is before God. But someone that says, look, you don't judge me, I'll let God judge It's a frightening thing. David tells us in Psalm 32 what it is to have God judge us, and he's talking about God's judgment temporally on believers. Yet shall they renew their repentance? See, David was writing as a person whose repentance was being renewed, not as a person who was coming to Christ for the first time. He was renewing his repentance by the gift of God and preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. Even Psalm 32, Psalm 51 of David, through it all, David was still a recipient of the doctrine and the preservation of the saints. Again, if our preservation was based upon us, what we have done, then we know we would not be able to stand. That's why David in that Psalm again says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. So with all these things being said, it is important to note that the doctrine of the preservation of the saints does not mean, and I think we've already learned this today, that believers cannot backslide and sin. This paragraph really makes note of the fact that believers can backslide and describes those consequences. All of what paragraph three is, is what backsliding does. It's the consequences. I've heard people also make this statement. Thank goodness they're just backslidden. Now, what they mean by that is what? Thank goodness they're just backslidden, but they're still going to heaven. As if backsliding is some kind of a consolation. Folks, we have learned how to pamper our spiritual consciences by saying one thing is better than the other. Yes, they did that horrible thing, but at least they're still going to heaven. As if God looks at it and says, you know, temporally, yeah, you did what you shouldn't have done, but you're still mine. You're still. That's not the way God views this. And that's not the way we're supposed to view this. We don't view this as, wow, well, they're just backslidden. Or, praise God, they prayed that prayer when they were 10. And folks, that's what some people use all their life to convince themselves that what their loved one or their family member or their friend is, yet they're still saved, maybe they never were. We use backsliding as a consolation to to soothe our own consciences by saying, at least they're going to go to heaven. That is not what the intent of being backslidden is, nor should we use the doctrine of perseverance to say, you know, if I do decide to mess up, decide to live a life of sin, God will preserve me. My thinking would be on that today. If that's your attitude that, well, if I decide to fall into sin, at least I'm still going to heaven, there's something desperately wrong. If you're even thinking about what sin you might want to attempt, There's something spiritually desperately wrong with you. Now, again, I don't mean to be harsh today, but that's the reality of our spiritual natures. If we're thinking about what we might be able to do, spiritually, we're either on the verge of falling into grievous sin, or we already have. So it's very important to think about what this is happening. So there are consequences. The life of David can be used to demonstrate some of those consequences. Again, we're not pinning David to the wall and saying, Now, David, here's all the things you shouldn't be. Much like the Apostle Peter in the New Testament, every one of us has within ourselves the backslidden condition of David and the backslidden condition of Peter. But yet we sometimes think that would never happen to me. David, although this man after a God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14, committed a grievous sin with Bathsheba. David's fall into backsliding happened long before he fell into sin with Bathsheba. This was not an instantaneous, I fell into a backslidden condition. Folks, let me just put it this way. People that have been in backslidden conditions and actually are restored and renew their repentance and restored, when it happened, they'll tell you every single time, it didn't just happen one Sunday morning when I woke up and said, I'm just going to neglect. It, it happened over a period of time. And it begins with the neglect of little things that we think spiritually don't matter. We think, I don't need that. I can, I can take care of my own spiritual problems. I can do my own devotion. I don't need things. And we neglect our own spiritual soul. So we have to look at this paragraph through this assertion and this theme. The central assertion of this paragraph may be stated as follows. True believers may and do fall into grievous sins and continue in them for a period of time. The contents are arranged and centered around that theme. That's really what paragraph three is all about. The possibility and the reality of believers falling into a backslidden condition. That's what the the confession writers had in mind with the scriptural footnotes they use. Notice they're using passages, and we'll look at some of these today. Matthew 26, Isaiah 64, Ephesians 4 psalms 51 which i've made reference to today psalm 32 which is a psalm that we read and actually did a a bit of an exposition on and then second samuel 12 14 and then luke 22 so we need to understand this is what was arranged at. now david becomes the central theme about today but david's not the only one that this can happen to okay so this outline david although a man after god's own heart that's Reference 1 Samuel 13:14 committed grievous sin with Bathsheba as a result of this sin. Now these are the four main things that we can see. We can see number one, he caused God's name to be blasphemed. Now this is an interesting way that, that the Samuel puts this in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12. Let's turn over there. 2 Samuel chapter 12, and notice how it's written about David's sin. Now, this this is the account of the Lord, and it tells us this in verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan unto David. So God uses another individual to go unto David, and he gives him a sort of a parable. And he tells him a parable about a poor man and a lamb, and he tells him about a traveler. And he talks about someone taking of that lamb and how David would respond if it was him. And of course, he responds in a way, well, of course, I would avenge that. I would take care of that because that man stole someone else's possession. And yet, notice what it says in verse 9. He says, wherefore, hast thou despised the commandments of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house." Think about what he's saying there. Out of your own house, I'm going to raise up evil against who? Against you. And I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Wow. Now there's a friend. There's a friend who has enough. Boldness to go to an individual and says, David, you're the man in the illustration. That's what he was talking about. All this, here's what you did. Here's how you're the illustration of that you lamb he talks about in the beginning of this this, uh, chapter. David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Now, if you stop there and you think, whew, God pulled back the reins on him. No, you've got to keep reading. How be it, or don't forget, how be it, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. You know, we often stop short of God's judgment where it feels comfortable to us. That's why this idea of just preaching a verse here and there is really, it's really a forgery. Because if I just preach that verse today, and I didn't talk about anything around it, I just preach verse 13 to you, and it says, thou shalt not die. Well, I could, I could build all sorts of theology around that. But the entire story, yes, David doesn't die, but guess what? The baby does. The baby that's a result of David's sin dies. Now that leads up to the question that we naturally do and our theological minds always lead to the question, did the baby go to heaven? And that's a good question for us all to ask. But are, are you realizing why you're thinking about why the baby is in heaven or not? Because the baby died as a direct result of David's sin. Right? It's a direct result of David's sin announced by God himself. God tells through Nathan, David, you did everything secretly. I'm going to do this openly so that all Israel sees what you have done. Scandal. By the way, don't laugh at the scandal of another individual. We're so quick, we think scandal's entertainment. We think scandal is funny. It's not. David is told, your actions have blasphemed my name. You've made a mockery of me. This is the same David who's a man after God's own heart. Is your name anywhere in the scriptures that says you are a man after God's own heart? No, David's is, but yet we're pointed to the fact that David committed this sin. So he caused God's name to be blasphemed. Secondly, he incurred God's displeasure. Now, this happens before the story of Nathan. So let's go back one chapter in Second Samuel eleven twenty-seven. This is where uh, David is putting these things in action. Uh, he's he's putting his his sin in action. Uh, Verse 25, Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife and bare him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord." So we read this, these are listed in a different order, but 2 Samuel 11 led us to 2 Samuel 12. So David's displeasure of God led to his blaspheming of God. You see how the pattern goes. It's like uh, like a rock rolling downhill. The longer it rolls, the faster it gets. One thing after the other. Number three, David experienced some earthly judgments in that he would now always have trouble in his house. We read that in 2 Samuel 12, 10, and that the baby would die, 2 Samuel 2, 14. So these are very real consequences of a believer who is in a backslidden condition. Now, our modern Christianity says, thankfully, that's the God of the Old Testament, and we don't have to worry about those things anymore. You show me scripturally where that actually says that. Show me one place where it says in the New Testament, all the temporal judgments or the judgments in the Old Testament do not apply to the New. Just because there was 400 years between the end of Malachi and the next prophet in Matthew doesn't mean that God changed. Somehow, some churches and people have gotten the idea that in that intertestamentary period, God had a change of heart and suddenly began to act differently than he used to. Or that somehow Jesus Christ was the softer version of the angry God that we see in the Old Testament. Again, show me where that takes place. This is the result of generations of people not being taught scripture, but being taught topics and ideas to pamper and soften who God is, which is why you have an influx of thousands of people that say, I just want the Jesus of love. And they don't know scripture more than a handful of them because every single week, that's all they hear is the same message. God is love. Jesus is love. There's no judgment. There's nothing to worry about. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be content. God wants every day to be a Friday. And you become the greatest selling author of all time by selling false heretical material. And yet my Bible talks about a very loving God and praise God he is loving. And praise God that he's not a type of love. God is love. But do not neglect the reality of the God of wrath because everything that God does in wrath, God is still just and he's right. If he decides to strike a believer down because of their sin, he has every right to do so. He created that person. He created that soul. He doesn't have to ask you permission. He doesn't have to give you 12 chances. He can simply say, that's it. and we wander around in our churches and trying to find the church that will speak to my heart and the church that will make me feel good about myself, you ought to feel some sense of reverence of God and the responsibilities that we have before him. And if you can't leave, when you understand the doctrines of grace and you can't understand what mercy is and what long suffering is, if you need something more than that to make yourself feel good, something's wrong. Because if you truly know who you and I are, apart from his grace and making us willing to believe, we are masses of nothing. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Who am I that you even consider me for anything? So these are all very much real thoughts we need to think about. Number four, David experienced spiritual dryness and lost his sense of assurance and joy. David, in another psalm, and the the reference escaped me at the moment, asked God to restore unto him the joy of his salvation. Do you know why he wasn't joyful? Because he was living in sin and he was unrepentant. You show me a real believer who's backslidden and living in sin, you're not going to see a joyful person no matter how many smiles they put on their face. If they're truly in God, they're not smiling. They're not rejoicing. Because God's hand, if they're one of his, is heavy upon he or she. We have this idea that God's just kind of saying, well, you're, that's all right, I understand. David described it as his hand was heavy upon me. That's why people try to run away from God. They're, they're not running away from their consequences. They're running away from the burden and the heavy hand of God that's upon them. And the problem is you can't get away from it. No matter how far you run, you can't get away from God. That same great promise that says no matter what you do, you can't be lost eternally, that same hand that preserves you and says you are secure, no man can pluck you out of his hand, that same great joy that we find comfort in, don't miss the other side of the coin. If you as a believer decide to neglect the things of God and fall into unrepented sin, there will be consequences and he will not let you go. His hand is going to be upon you. Now, if you've never been through spiritual dryness, don't tell another person you know what it is to go through a spiritual desert. Because if you've never been through it, you don't know what that is. Dryness where there is nothing. Even the very presence of God is being questioned. That's what happens to a believer in a backslidden condition. We're not just talking about a person who decides to sit out of church a couple weeks. We're talking about someone who, as a believer who has gotten to a complete place where their neglect led them to fall into other things, and their joy is gone. There is no rejoicing. So these spiritual experiences, and that's what we read in, in Psalm 32, in Psalm 51, we didn't read all those things, but that's the reference. I should have known that. Verse 12 of Psalm 51, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. In the previous verse, he says, Cast me not away from thy presence. David was such in an arid condition. He even begins to question, God might cast me out, even though he knew the promises of God that said he would never be cast out. He felt that way. Nine times out of ten, when people are battling with their assurance, it's related to something that's happening with your neglect. You don't just wake up with lack of assurance. Things start to get neglected. And folks, I'm telling you from experience, it happens so quick. You look up and you don't even realize it happened to you. You don't even realize it. And yet... Thankfully, God does not discard David. He didn't discard Peter. But there were consequences. Oftentimes we tell the backslider, well, I'll pray that God doesn't bring any consequences on your life. Can I tell you something? It's often the consequences are the very thing that drives that person back. So if your prayer is, remove the consequences. No. See, people pray boldly without knowing what they're asking for. They pray things like this, do whatever it takes, Lord. Do you know what you just said? Now, number one, he doesn't have to have your permission to do that. He already has every means at his disposal to do whatever it takes to bring one of his back home. But we often pray that from a position of do whatever it takes, wondering that if we were in that situation, would we want God to do everything it takes? There is no one way that they'll come back. It is God that has to restore them. But David knew that. David's saying, restore unto me. Verse 10 of 51, Psalm 51 says, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. He knew God had to renew the spirit. He knew God's the one that had to restore him. And then that's in Psalm 51, that leads David to to verse 13 says, then will I teach transgressors thy way when he's been delivered. So these are very, they're very serious matters. So because David was a true believer, he repented of his sin and was restored by God. That's Psalm 51. And That's what records David's repentance and restoration. Now, we also know that if we we're to apply this, and we're not gonna have time to get into all these references today, and some of these verses are familiar. So I'd encourage you to kind of study these on your own. And most of these are, or some of these rather, are the footnoted ones, other ones are not. The sources of of this grievous sin and backsliding are the world. So the world and its allure is one of the things that leads to the neglect of the the ways of God's preservation. Satan is a very real uh, enemy. Um, Spiritual warfare is real. Um, There is a very real attack. Um, And don't forget our own sinful natures called our flesh in the New Testament, Galatians 5, 17, James 1:14. Both of those talk about how our own flesh is warring against the spirit. Our own corrupt nature is warring against the things which we know to be right. There's a battle. Those sinful forces cause some believers to neglect prayer, the word, and Christian fellowship. They are weakened and then fall into sin. Believers are therefore cautioned to watch and pray lest they fall into temptation. Now, why in the world was Jesus telling the disciples that? Why was he telling them to watch and pray? In that whole garden, in the garden, when he told them, you know, can't you you watch for a single hour? And he's telling them, watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation. That, That tells us there's a diligence that we're to have about our own walk with God. Folks, don't let the doctrines of grace lead you to a passive situation where you say, I just have to go along for the ride and just sit here and float down the river. You are supposed to be diligently working out your salvation, Philippians says, which means you ought to be eating God's word like your necessary food. You ought to be delighting in God. Everything about God ought to bring joy to your soul, not drudgery. Imagine if every time we have to be reminded to watch and to pray, lest you fall into the temptation to neglect that one thing, or to neglect something so important. Peter also experienced similar backsliding in sin when he denied the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about three times he actually verbally, audibly, and heard by others, denied he knew Christ three times. It's an amazing thing that Peter even shows up after anything that took place in Christ's life. And yet, after Christ goes to the cross and after the resurrection, Jesus then gives those words to Peter, feed my sheep. It wasn't until after all of that, Peter really understood what Jesus Christ was talking about. Those disciples were absolutely blown away when Jesus Christ went to the cross. This idea that they were sitting around the table at night saying, well, you know, the day's coming closer, fellas. Jesus getting ready to go to the cross. This is what we've been talking about. This is what the prophets were talking about. It's coming. Yeah, the cross is coming. They had no clue, really, what he was talking about until he started getting to the end and he started announcing to them, I'm going away. And when they took him, They all scattered. And Peter's the one that we read most about is standing right outside the hall. Jesus is just inside the other wall and he's denying Christ. I don't even know that man. Profanely saying, I know not the man. What do we say about Peter's condition? Same with David. Peter brought great grief and anguish into his life. Matthew 26, verse 75, uh, gives us a little bit about this. Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. He understood. Yet, because he was a true believer, he did repent. Matthew 26, 74, and 75, and was restored by Christ himself, which is what we see in John 21, verses 15. Again, remember, this is events later. John 21, verse 15, Jesus speaking directly to Peter. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he had said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walked whether thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and carry thee whether thou wouldest not. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to die at the hands of someone else. Your arms stretched out. And we know what tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified in the same manner of the Lord. He said, I'm not even worthy to die the same death. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. Notice that. Have you ever noticed what that verse says? Your your mind, from a grammatical standpoint, thinks what it's going to say. This spake he signifying what death he should die. That's what you think it's going to say. That's not what it says. He said he would glorify God. It is through his death, Peter glorified God. But imagine where Peter had come from. And when he has spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. So the sources of the grievous sin, as we talked about, are the, word, or the world, rather, Satan, and our own sinful nature. So we can understand that part. So as a result, and we'll have to be a little quick with this today, and maybe it's something we need to chew on. Um, what, are, what are some of those results that happen or can happen when a believer sins? What are just some basic things that can happen? You can lose your your own testimony. Okay, good. I'll add one. We blaspheme God. That's not a very popular one. We definitely lose our testimony, but we blaspheme God in the same manner in which David did. Others? I kind of go along with what you said the world, if it's unsaved, the world mocks God. Look for the to follow to sin and then yep. okay. Good. Any other thoughts? It breaks your fellowship with God. It breaks your fellowship, right? It breaks your fellowship with God, and I think it breaks a fellowship with other believers too. Which is important. But both of those both are broken. I think the spiritual dryness is very real. And like I said, there's, there's some of us who probably truly know what that is. Nobody wants to know what our past is. But if you've been in that spiritual dry place, um, you read Psalm 32, and you're, you're like, I understand some of this, what David was talking about. Yep. To someone else's sin? Right. Yeah. Sins. Yes, that's a good point. But like, we see that, how kind of to respond to Right. And that is, it's, a, it's another angle. It's a good point, is how, how are we as a church, or, just, or other believers, even for that matter, to respond when someone else sins? Mm-hmm. And yet, Galatians tells us, if a brother be overtaken in a fault, we're to do everything we can to restore that brother. Mm-hmm. Now, make no mistake about it, there are some who don't want restored. There have been many, many people over the years who the church and other believers have made it a, made a, a, done all they could do and that person did not want restored. But that should be our first response to a believer who falls in sin. Often what happens is we treat that person like a leper. And now in some cases, there are certain things we have to do and not do. But remember in Galatians, it says the same thing. Don't be too... I'm paraphrasing. Don't be so filled with your own pride that you don't think this can't happen to you, Skylar. I'd like to hear what Isaiah or Job would say to number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think you can, you can certainly. I mean, that was one of the that was one of the um, verses that was footnoted was Isaiah 64, which I think um, um, he says there. He says. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Thou meetest him that rejoiceth and worketh righteousness. Those that remember thee in thy ways, behold, thou art wroth, for we have sinned, in those is continuance, and we shall be saved. This is familiar. But we all, as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee, for thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, thou art our Father, we are the clay, and thou art potter, and we all are the work of thy hand. Be not wroth, be not wroth very sore, O Lord, neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, see, we beseech thee, we all, we are all. Thy people. So, I mean, even, even Isaiah, and that's just, that's just one verse out of many dealing with the realities of how we're to view sin. But again, go into the, the details of what sin did as far as consequence in the book of Isaiah, and you'll see that repeatedly. I okay, guess so that's kind of. I'm not saying. No, no, no go ahead. Um, in relation to like Isaiah 6: High and Holy list Isaiah didn't necessarily, that wasn't a result, necessarily of his sin, but he thought he was going to die anyway. Right. Right. And then, Joe, into that whole conversation between him and all his friends was whether he's sin or not. Right. Right. And then. The council of the three friends, yeah. 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 But then in the end, he, he's like. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's so many there's so many passages we could go with that. Um, We want to tackle the second one before we wrap this up. What about doctrinal? What about doctrinal practical implications? If if we if that principle or that doctrine is rejected, what are some of the doctrinal implications of that? So if a person rejects the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, what is it? What's a doctrinal um, implication of that? Wow, go ahead, Jake. You <laughs> can take any stake in God's promises at all. Yeah, you cannot take any stake or even believe any promises of God at all. Good answer. So that pretty much that was like we planned that, wasn't it? Um, it really it un, it undoes it all. So that's a so that's maybe... The, anybody want to add to the doctrinal implication of that? Further that? So what about the practical implication? Are they the same or is, it, is there a difference? I think it's an example where the doctrinal and the, and, the, mm-hmm. and the practical really merge into one. I mean, how, how could I practically... Again, my my practice ought to match be a result of my doctrine, right? So how could I counsel someone effectively if practically speaking, I reject this doctrine of perseverance? What what could I tell them to actually give them hope? Practically, if, if I had a person sitting in my sitting across from me, a desk or in a coffee house or whatever, asking me practically, how could I give them hope if I rejected the doctrine of perseverance of the saints? I have nothing. Because there'd be no guarantee. Like you said, you'd have to reject the promises. All right? All right. So that concludes chapter 17, paragraph 3. Um, so next week, I'll just give you a little tease. Stay tuned to what we're going to do next, okay? So we may take a brief couple of weeks and deal with a subject, or we may jump right into chapter 18. So... Uh, You'll have to wait till next week to find that out for sure, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this morning, and Father, we just thank you for your word and these great promises, but Lord, I also pray that we would not easily forget what we've heard today, and may we be reminded minute by minute of David's confession of sin in Psalm 32. May it uh, so resonate in our hearts that we just cannot escape it, and understand that David's fall into sin didn't just happen one morning uh, but it began by the neglect of the things which he already knew and i certainly pray that we will be spiritually aware of that and father we do pray uh, for those at this very moment Uh, i think it would be accurate to say that everyone in this room in some way shape or form in some relationship whether it's work whether it's family whether it's friend an acquaintance knows someone Uh, who is truly in a backslidden condition, Uh, truly have experienced what David was speaking and writing about. And Lord, we do pray that they would be, have their repentance renewed and that they would be restored to the joy of their salvation. Father, we trust you that we'll be given the words to say and the words to speak. Uh, Lord, if we're called upon to be your vessel, to speak hope into them. And Lord, we do pray for the restoration of all that are away from you today. We pray for the unbeliever also who needs to be brought to repentance and conversion. Father, whether that's someone that's in this church or someone in our families and friends and those same groups, Lord, uh, we certainly pray that their eyes would be open, their ears would be unstopped, and they would be made willing to believe according to your perfect will. We love you and we thank you, Father, for this time. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.